You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Some of our audience has been asking us, what is the forum exactly? Well, for over 31 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, or the Forum for short, has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow professional leadership and effectiveness skills in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or what we call DEI, by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. And while meeting in person is limited right now, the Forum has tripled its digital offerings thanks to our generous community of DEI practitioners and professionals. Visit our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash webinar for a list of upcoming webinars and other special presentations. We'll also be releasing video from our 2020 conference, Facing Forward, very soon. With our standard webinar series, special presentations, podcasts, and newly published content from our conference, as well as great archive material, we can continue to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change together. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator at the, here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Thank you for joining us today for this very special podcast um, with presenter Rebecca Slaby of AmazeWorks here in the Twin Cities. For uh, those of you who are not familiar, Rebecca presented last week for us uh, a very successful, very popular webinar uh, on white fragility, white fragility and microaggressions in the workplace when good people behave badly, which I'm very pleased to say is one of our most popular and highest attended webinars. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for presenting that. Um, and from that webinar, we had so many great questions that unfortunately were not able to be answered. So we decided to give you this special bonus podcast, this um, White Fragility 1.5, we'll call it, um, where Rebecca is going to answer uh, the questions or some of the questions that we weren't able to get to on the webinar and continue this very important conversation. So before, um, before we get into the questions, I'd like to introduce Rebecca. And why don't you tell us a, um, a little bit about yourself and your backstory for the people who weren't on the webinar. All right, thanks so much, Ben. I'm really excited to be here and to be uh, digging a little deeper into some of the content that I provided last week on white fragility and microaggressions. A little bit about myself. I am uh, the executive director at Amaze Works. I was formerly a middle school teacher for uh, over 15 years uh, and really focused on educational equity during that time and really thinking about how we can have intentional regular conversations with children of all ages uh, in order to reduce bias levels. You know, what is the proactive way that we can uh, reduce bias and all the isms? And I found for a long time that it was through working with children that we could do that. Uh, and um, uh, personally, I am a Korean American adoptee who has um, kind of a white privileged lens on society. And I, I name that usually right in the beginning of workshops or webinars like these because I think it's important 
for people to understand uh, my lens, my frame on the world. I was raised in a white family in predominantly white communities. I didn't really know any other adoptees um, growing up. Uh, and so I like to say that I was very insulated by whiteness in many ways. Um, and also it did a doozy on my self-identity and my, you know, wanting to be white growing up um, and always feeling like I didn't quite fit in or I wasn't quite good enough because I wasn't white and I didn't have, you know, the ubiquitous blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, Barbie doll kind of look. Um, so in many ways, you know, um, whiteness has been hard for me, but also um, it's a, I navigate very well in whiteness and um, I've been, as I said, insulated by whiteness in many ways. So that's my frame on society that I've worked really hard to, um, to change. And as some people might say, decolonize myself in that way. Thank you so much for sharing. And again, thank you um, for doing this follow-up podcast with us. Uh, let's just jump right in. In the podcast, you use, I'm sorry, in the webinar, you use the term POCI uh, quite frequently. What does the term POCI mean? So it's interesting because I got a really wonderful email from um, a, a participant um, asking kind of about the history of the language around POCI and a few other of the comments from the webinar really were thinking about, or we're, we're talking about how that term POCI, so people of color and indigenous people is what that, that means, um, has been co-opted by white folks. Um, and so I did, you know, a little bit of, of research and, you know, found that the, the term was really coined in the late 1980s um, to suggest racial solidarity of non-whites and that whites are um, actually a global minority. And it was meant to replace the word minority, which um, people still use to refer to people of color and indigenous people, even though technically we are the global majority. And you might hear that term being used more and more, more and more as an affirming term to, re to talk about um, non-whites, right? So there's this whole, you know, thinking about the power of language and how we call ourselves and call others, there's so much power in that. So, you know, there's pushback against um, talking about non-whites because it's the opposite of white and and seeming that white is the norm, so everyone else is non-white, right? There is this idea of um, now people are often saying BIPOC, right? Black indigenous people of color. Now the I had been added because um, it was a really important um, as a solidarity thing to think about how Native Americans and indigenous folks, because of the history of genocide and colonization, um, you know, and broken treaties and all that, like we needed to make sure that we were specifically um, remembering indigenous folks. And so that's where the I got added on after POCI. Well, BIPOC now is black indigenous people of color, right? And this idea that um, because of specific anti-blackness that's happening in our country, again, looking at our country's history around slavery and um, 
you know, how racism and systems of oppression have worked towards black folks, black Americans, African Americans, right? To be able to separate black and indigenous away from people of color kind of high, keeps um, the attention a little bit on uh, where it's needed, right? On those communities. Um, now, as an Asian American person, and I talked about this in the Q&A of the first webinar, um, I struggle with BIPOC because as much as I intellectually know and believe that we need to keep the attention um, on Black and Indigenous folks in our country because of the history of violence and anti-Blackness and the erasure of Indigenous people from our history, basically, and our awareness as a country. Being lumped as everybody else into people of color as an Asian American is a little hard for me. And so I definitely have that intellectual back and forth for myself. Um, and I've talked with other people of color about what feels good for them. And I know more and more um, black folks, black and brown folks who really like the term BIPOC. Um, and so, you know, language is power. And again, it's how we use language to be inclusive, to create belonging or to um, actually continue to marginalize a group of people is really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, uh, could you share a bit about the similarities and distinctions between white privilege and white fragility? Yes, I can. Can I say one more thing about POCI actually? Yeah, definitely. Okay, Please. sorry. With something that came up in this email exchange that I had with a participant in that, what she was noticing was that oftentimes white folks would say people of color. Um, but what they really meant are like immigrants, non-white immigrant and refugee populations. Um, and what they really weren't doing was including black African-American and indigenous po populations of basically the native people of color here. Um, and because it's harder to, you know, is it harder to address anti-black racism or a history of colonialism and genocide for indigenous people? But we can absolutely, and this is definitely the case in Minnesota, right? Support our immigrant and refugee, refugee populations, call it people of color, and then we're good, you know? Uh, and so that's been a criticism about how whites have kind of maybe co-opted uh, the term people of color or POCI. The power, like language, like you said, is very important and the terms we use are extremely important, um, especially in when it comes to talking about something as sensitive as race and the uh, different groups uh, ex experience and the you know, decades of, or centuries of oppression and genocide and, you know, slavery. So that's definitely, I mean, that's a heavy one to start off with. <laughs> Heavy, heavy first question there, um, but yeah, but like yeah, back to the back to language, like what the you know in the in the webinar you know white fragility is in the title of the webinar, but you also refer uh, talked about white privilege um, quite a bit in the webinar. So, what's the difference between them? What are the similarities and what are the distinctions? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know. Um, white privilege can trigger white fragility, 
right? If we, if we can hold up a mirror to white folks and say, because of race and how people see you as a racialized individual and in our country, right? You don't have to worry about, and then the litany of things, right? It, it, you know, just reading Peggy McIntosh's, you know, Invisible Knapsack um, around white privilege and the list of things that she says that as a white woman, she never has to think about. Um, that's what privilege is. Privilege does not mean, and, and it's, I think it gets confusing for some people or can get their dander up <laughs> um, when it's talked about unearned advantages because there are a lot of white folks who feel like life has not given them advantages, right? Or that they have been disadvantaged in many other ways um, so that they can't consider them ha themselves having privilege. And, you know, in a lot of my workshops and trainings, it's, okay, one, we got to recognize we all have biases. Two, we have to recognize that we all have privileges, right? D and some privileges convey more power in our society than others, but it doesn't mean that we are only marginalized in who we are or only privileged in who we are. Um, and um, so, but when we do talk about privilege, like how do we talk about it in a way that it's the privilege of not ever having to think about your race, right? The privilege of not ever having to think about how people are going to react to you um, because of your racial identity, because of how they see you, you know, to me, that is that that saying it like that, the privilege of not ever having to think about it is really that acknowledgement that uh, we lived in, we live in a racialized society that we respond and interact and our systems are built based on race in our country and who has power and who doesn't um, instead of like you have all these advantages which may be true but that doesn't go so well with many white folks i've noticed when you put it like that and holding up that mirror around white privilege triggers the white fragility actions that i talked about in the webs in the webinar you know the defensiveness the anger the denial the all of those things so that's really kind of the difference. And you can have um, kind of white fragility reactions to things that don't have to do with race. Maybe it's, you know, because part of that is tied up with also patriarchy and just in general kind of dominant identities of if you're going to call me out on my privilege, no matter what the identity is, I'm going to get defensive because I was just born this way, or it's not my fault that I, you know, was raised in a middle upper class suburb and got to go to college and didn't have to, you know, all those things. I worked for it, you know, all of those things. Um, you can still get kind of defensive around um, being called out at any privilege and have those kind of white fragility responses. But really, ultimately, we're talking about race. Um, and then kind of tied up with that, you know, there were some other questions that came up around using the term fragility itself, uh, raising feelings of less than for white folks or shame and blame and guilt, you know, being moved to tears with the idea of white tears and how that's not actually helpful in people of color spaces. 
um, how do I change myself, all of those kind of things. And I mean, you might be offended if someone calls you out for privilege or fragility in the way that you're acting or white tears or something, but that's really your feelings being hurt compared to kind of how the structures of power around race can function in really actual harmful ways for a person of color and indigenous person. So I think that's really an important thing to keep in mind is, yes, your feelings will get hurt. You, you won't like it, but you'll be okay, right? And, and that's how power works around the term of privilege, terms of privilege and fragility. Thank you. And while we'll continue on the language, um, the language course, uh, let's, let's questions about microaggressions. I've been hearing sensitivity to the language of microaggressions. Can you comment on the term itself and some of the ways it's received and how to navigate the pros and cons of the term? Right. So, um, in terms of the term is it itself and how it's really received, um, that is a nuanced thing that I think DEI professionals need to navigate and understand like who's in the room, who are you talking to? There are definitely workshops I give where I never talk about, I never mention the word privilege, white fragility, white supremacy, whiteness. I don't talk about microaggressions. I might talk about what those things are without giving them those names, but, uh, or those labels or using those words. Um, but it's, you know, gauging, how are you going to keep people in the room and how are you going to keep them engaged so they can actually hear and process what you're talking about? So sometimes, yeah, make, don't ever call it microaggressions if you think that that's going to get an aggressive response. Um, but really, you know, <laughs> thinking about how microaggressions, their, their power lies in the invisibility of them to the, the person doing the microaggressions, right? And microaggressions are really about how everyday interactions, how everyday lived experiences get, um, sorry, how systems of oppression and inequity get played out in everyday interactions and lived experiences, right? That's, that's what, what microaggressions are and just to clarify because there were some questions around this too is like well can't you know an asian person have a, a microaggression against a black person or vice versa or you know people of color can commit microaggressions to to anybody else too and all of that is true right microaggressions and i tried to give examples of these in the webinar, you know, there are microaggressions happen about all aspects of our identity, not just race, ethnicity, and culture, right? About ability and body size and education level and, you know, personal identities around maybe your your job, right? What, what role you play? Are you a stay-at-home mom? You know, the soccer mom thing, there's lots of microaggressions around the value of women's work, all of those things, right? But again, coming back to the power of the microaggressions and when there are microaggressions around race in particular, right? And in the workplace for sure around gender and ability as well, um, there's real power there that actually can cause real harm to the people who are experiencing 
experiencing those microaggressions in a way that harm isn't affecting, you know, oh, again, that idea of like my feelings are hurt versus what's the real harm because of the power. Um, and so um, always remembering that like microaggressions bring history into an in interaction. You know, I talked in the webinar about we bring our racialized history into any given interaction. For people of color and indigenous people, we're very aware of our racialized history. For white folks, oftentimes they're not, unless they're talking to or interacting with a person of color. Then they think race is at play. But race is always at play, whiteness is always at play with other whites too. And so microaggressions about are about like what's the real history that's happening then in that interaction how is that microaggression a reminder of real historical harms that have happened to either me personally or to my particular group even if the perpetrator perpetu perpetrator that's sorry even if the perpetrator the is not aware of that history and is not aware of that harm and so that's, again, where power comes into play around microaggressions. And in your work, because you mentioned the different kind of microaggressions, um, other than racial microaggressions, do you see it, um, does it seem easier to talk about gender or sexual orientation bias and racial bias? Um, that seems to be what shows up in our environment. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is something, that um, came up a few times again in the difference, you know, I, I've talked about it as how can we not engage in a hierarchy of oppression, which oppression is worse than another oppression, um, or someone else has referred to it as oppression Olympics. And then I love this one, the what aboutism? Well, what about that? All of those things. Um, so one, we need to acknowledge and address oppression in all of its forms right, microaggressions and inequitable policies and practices in all its form for all identities. So talking about race does not diminish the importance or the impact on other, other identities. And at the same time, again, it's about history and about power, right, and how race is so central to what is happening in our country and how our country was founded, that we still need to keep race at the center of our DEI work, right? And when we keep race at the center of our DEI work, we're actually able to lift up all other identities as well, right? If you, if you work towards raising the bottom, everybody will come up as well. And because of the racial hierarchy in our country, that is where we really need to focus. Now, somebody had asked in one of the Q&As about, well, you know, my company only wants to focus on race and not do, says can, we can't do anything else around DEI until we deal with race. And I disagree with that too, right? I mean, I think there is a both and instead of an either or here that needs to be always kept in mind, right? Just like focusing on anti-blackness you know, or focusing anti-racism efforts, particularly on anti-blackness and the erasure of indigenous people should be the center of anti-racism work. And we need to also consider intersectionality and the layering of oppressions and 
it's not actually di diminishing the harm that other people are experiencing as well, right? It's a both and instead of an either or. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, in your in the uh, in the webinar, you mentioned having an having an ally and not speaking up when experiencing microaggressions in the workplace. Unfortunately, there may not be an ally, and the POC has to, or POCI, or B or BPOC has to speak up. Um, and this is the uh, the question: We can um, cannot really re cannot rely on someone else to speak up on our behalf. What do you recommend to someone who is the only in the workplace? Right, and and this is a really great question, and it comes also in the vein of a bunch of other questions around like how do we give cross racial feedback to a white manager, or how do you help a friend who's not being treated? you know, in the same way as a white colleague is, or how do white people call out on, call out their white coworkers on racist or biased behavior, right? All of those ideas, like how do we talk to each other? How do we respond? You know, and there are levels of engagement, I think that we really have to consider. And unfortunately, there is not an easy answer to this question. Um, you know, it is one, like, uh, and this was shared in the resources that's on your website or forum on workplace inclusions website um, How do you know a responding to microaggressions handout that has some? Um, prompts and ways that you can ask questions or point things out um, To somebody in a way that doesn't shut them down so that you can stay engaged in the conversation You always have to consider who you're talking to and and how race shows up in your power dynamic and you know is this a person of color is this a black person talking to a white person that's going to have a different dynamic than probably an asian person talking to a white person i mean i i frankly believe that i can say and do i can say a lot of things about race as an asian american to a white person that most of my black colleagues and friends could never say to a white person, right? So we have to acknowledge how race shows up in any of the interaction, just like how a lot of white people say white people need to be talking to white people, right? We don't always have a choice though. Sometimes an issue really needs to be addressed. And despite the racial power dynamics in a relationship. And so how do you do that? Look at the responding to microaggressions handout practice those actually practice do some role playing in my workshops i have people do role playing um but then who has the positional power is also the question um what is their agency and their support um so that's like in assessing on an individual level person to person who is the power around position agency support there's also then the question around like hr right I really highly suggest if you're in a place where you are experiencing a lot of microaggressions or um, things that are just making you wonder, is this about my race or is it, you know, what's happening here? Keep a record of what's happening. Real, document, save emails, after something, a conversation, write it down. Just keep a running record because you never know, you never know how, I mean, how those kind of human rights um, kind of violations and things that happen in the workplace might happen. So 
keep a record, but then what are the organization's policies around anti-discrimination? You know, does HR actually have your back or have employees' backs or is, or is HR functioning more as kind of status quo keeping for the organization? Um, then there's also then sometimes it's like, no, this organization is not prepared to have real conversations about race yet or, or about microaggressions or white fragility. But maybe where we need to start is some basic communication skills and conflict resolution skills, right? Is that the, the, the foundation where we need to start first before race and identity come into the conversation? How are we just in communicating? Are you able to have any sort of like constructive feedback conversations with your supervisors at all? What's the climate and the culture? So there are lots of ways to kind of gauge what's happening and kind of where you need to start because there are some places that there are some very wonderful, like well-meaning, I really want to dig deep into DEI because this is the work that we need to do, you know, people in your organization. But if there's not a culture around communication, conflict resolution, and a stated kind of mission around belonging, you're just going to hit your head against the wall, right? And then there's another level altogether that <laughs> I like to say is like, work with the living, right? There are going to be people that you will encounter in trying to have these conversations that will not be able to engage with you. Um, for political, personal, whatever reasons, so you can't change them, right? We can't change anybody, actually. That's like a whole behavior psychology thing. Um, but, um, you know, put your energies towards the people that you can work with and that you can, um, that you can help grow and move in a journey together. Because there are some people you just won't be able to do that. Um, yeah, and on that note, like, what are your go-tos for de-escalating heated conversations and emotions from white people when you're facilitating? Like, when you run into one of those people who are just, you know, not going to be changed or who are just having, not having the conversation, not there for the conversation. Right, so I, this is where I tap into my teacher brain and, like, the work around that I, or the research and the the stuff I know around um, behavior management <laughs> with people. So um, one, I think in any place, this is part of like the communication the climate, have you been able to set some norms or some kind of rules of engagement that everyone has agreed on? And how do you return to those norms or rules in times of conflict and say, you know, I noticed that you know, I'm feeling this and this is where I'm at. And because if you're not following those um, agreed upon norms or rules, right, then you're not going to get anywhere. And so how do you create that as a, as a group or a team? Um, and then really this idea of a brave space versus a safe space, which is something I always start off all of my workshops with. What's the difference between a brave and a space safe and how we can continue instead of just retreating into this idea of safety because we're uncomfortable, 
you know, how can we continue to be brave and continue to stay in the work even when it's hard and even when I feel bad and even when I don't like you right now because of something you said that hurt my feelings, you know, or because you don't really understand oppression at all and you don't understand my experience. Like, how can we be brave and stay in? Also acknowledging power and for some people being brave, it, 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 well, for people of color, indigenous people, they're brave all the time in white spaces. Like that's just a given all the time. And it's maybe not safe for them, actually safe for them instead of not uncomfortable, but actually not safe for them to stay engaged in a conversation. So the brave space is more like for white folks, like how do you stay engaged? So having that as a baseline, but then again, I go back to my work uh, in education with children, like talking about the brain, and this is something I did um, in the webinar, is helping people understand what's actually happening in our brains when we are triggered and we're experiencing those high emotions um, and talking about and giving them actually things to do. There are lots of movement, body to move, or body to brain movement activities that you can do to get people out of amygdala hijack. So how do you teach that to your staff in order to help them find ways to interrupt their own amygdala hijack so they can stay engaged? Also talking about, you know, purpose of the behavior and understanding instead of, you know, labeling someone as racist or angry black woman or, you know, <laughs> you know, silent docile Asian person, you know, according to our stereotypes, what's the purpose of our behavior? Looking back into kind of our five basic needs around belonging, freedom, fun, power, success, and then safety. But like, how are our needs in conflict? How are our, our need fulfillment desires driving our behaviors? And how can we look at some of our engagement around understanding race and racism from those perspectives, um, because then that takes it out of like this personal you attacked me to like, oh, there's some real stuff going on here around needs, around why we're saying and doing these things, you know, around brain stuff. And then how do we use that language around growth mindset? Um, I have a whole thing around growth mindset around DEI work. Um, and to, again, because the, the thing is we need to keep people engaged. Uh, because the work won't happen if people are checking out because we don't have these things in place to support them when the emotions are running high. On that note, there's another question. If you're a hiring director of equity and inclusion in a primarily white environment, what are you looking for in a candidate and how can we best support the candidate in this environment? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important one. I mean, so even getting to the hiring of the candidate, it, aside from, you know, there's two parts of that. It's the, where are you looking for candidates and what's your hiring practices to get them even in the door? And then once they're in the door, what are you going to do about it so that they stay? Right. And, you know, I mean, how are you, how are you looking at, um, you know, the blind resumes, but then even that, um, you know, the, the blind resume thing, it's what are we expecting our, our um, 
prospective candidates to have in terms of education and experience. Because again, this is where history comes into play um, and how systems work, right? For a lot of black and brown folks, um, you know, getting that experience and getting those levels of education are a lot harder than it is for most white, for a lot of white folks. Uh, and so even just in our, um, um, uh, what are we calling it, our must-haves for our lists, I'm not using a business term because I'm totally blanking on it, but requirements, candidate requirements, how are we automatically excluding a whole group of people, right? Are you hiring for traits and characteristics and, and or are you hiring, hiring for experience and education? What are the skills that can be taught, right? Versus, you know, the bare minimum or how are you going to uh, sponsor or mentor someone so they can get those skills instead of expecting them to walk in the door with them? So that's a big thing. The other part of it is how do you best support the candidate in the, in the environment? It's about belonging, right? What is it, you know, especially if there's a f only a few people of color, indigenous people in the workplace. And, and this is where using the term POCI gets, can get a little messy, right? Because, you know, you have one black person, two Asian people, and somebody who has a like a Spanish sounding last name, that's is how, how are you calling that diversity? How you're saying, oh yeah, we have people of color, except their experiences and their identities are so disparate that it's not like, oh, you should all just automatically get along because you're not white, or you should find community and belonging with each other because you're not white. Like, how are we lumping people together under this broad term of people of color? without actually taking into consideration being the only black person, even if there are other people of color in an office is a unique experience that needs support in a different way than if you're one of two Asian people, you know what I'm saying? So we gotta be careful how we, we use POCI and then lump all POCI together to call it diversity um, because that is not gonna help us support the people who want then get into our workspaces. Um, and it goes to a question that kind of was answered or was asked earlier too is, you know, what about employee resource groups and in, in, in supporting like in, infinity groups, not infinity, affinity groups. Um, and that's great too, but what if you don't have enough people, right? Yeah. And I just talked to one person this week who was like, yeah, well, you know, there's a Asian American affinity group and they have, you know, LGBTQ and that kind of thing, but they, they can't get a black African American affinity group going because those people don't feel safe meeting in a group. Um, they feel like it will, you know, it, will it make them stand out more, drawing attention, to, you know, there, there's not always safety, even if we say, well, they could just meet with each other. <laughs> so the belonging is question is really important, but also, are you asking, how are you asking them? What's their, you know, what's the person's opinion? What would help them feel like they belong? Just the point, just the fact that you might ask that question can help a lot too. 
Thank you so much, Rebecca, for this outstanding podcast. Um, I think that is a perfect place to end. Um, if you haven't re watched the original webinar, I highly recommend you visit our website forum, workplaceinclusion.org. View the original webinar on our website. And as Rebecca mentioned, there are, she did share a couple of very great resources as well. And there's also the slides from, from the webinar um, are all available on our website. And a lot of people asked the question about doing a a continuation of this, a part two. So we were just curious, um, Rebecca, what a part two would look like if we were to do, if you, if you, if we were to bring you back to do a part two, what would that look like? Well, it seemed to me from a lot of the questions, it was that the questions that started to direct more like, well, what do I do back in my workplace now? Right? Or, or how do I get other people on board with talking about white fragility. And so I think a, a webinar where we're really focusing on like, what, what do we do? What does that look like then back in a workplace um, would be good. And I'd love to explore this idea of levels of engagement, depending on who you're talking to and how power is playing out and how um, we people can start to engage more with each other. Uh, in their workspaces, depending on the circumstances and, and that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, thank you. Let's give some food for thought on some ideas for future programming, hopefully, maybe. Um, but again, we just want to thank you so much for um, doing this, uh, the initial webinar and this podcast. And I just want to thank everybody so much who listened. And if you'd like to continue the conversation or let, want more information, like I said, you're, I would highly recommend going back and checking out the original webinar. But you can also reach out directly to Rebecca. It's Rebecca at amazeworks.org. And also, we do have new webinar or new podcasts available on our website. Uh, that's for forumworkplaceinclusion.org for slash podcast. But you can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Again, for more information about that, visit our website, formworkplaceinclusion.org. And thank you so much again for listening to today's podcast. Have a great thank day. You. Thanks for having me again. Of course. Thank you for being willing to do this. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates in the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.